Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. What's up, family? So good to see you on this glorious Sunday morning. Hey, if you're joining us for the first time online, we want to say welcome to the Outpouring. My name is Pastor John. I'm the lead pastor of this wonderful, beautiful church, Uh, we call the outpouring of Orlando. We want to just welcome you in on today. We're so glad that you've decided to join us wherever you may be located. We pray that uh, at some point in the future, maybe you'll be able to join us in person and we would love to hug on you and love on you once things go back to normal. But for today, uh, we just want to welcome you in and welcome you part to be a part of our online community. We're so glad that you are with us. We pray that you've already been edified by the worship. And now we pray that God would speak directly to you today uh, during today's message. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to turn with me to the book of First Peter, uh, specifically First Peter chapter three. And we're going to look at the first seven verses of First Peter uh, chapter 3. And I want to say this at the outset, if you have not been with us the last uh, couple of weeks um, or you haven't been with us since we've been coming online, um, we've been in a series since the beginning of the year um, in First Peter uh, entitled Living on Mission. And essentially the premise is that uh, the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of people who are Christians, but they are exiles. They are living as exiles, not necessarily because they've been exiled to a geographical location, but they are exiles because they are living in a world where people are hostile to their faith and what they believe. And so that is part of the Christian experience, that we are all exiles, essentially, because we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are spiritual exiles. And so we are here in this pilgrimage through life. And first, Peter is a letter, a beautiful letter that tells Christians how to live out their faith in the context of suffering. And so I think all of us can relate to it now because uh, we are all suffering in a sense where things are not the way that they normally are. And so we're all learning how to make adjustments and live in light of the new normal. And so I think this is pertinent for us. I think it's relevant. I think it's real. I think it's helpful and it's beneficial for us. And so we want to invite you to journey with us as we seek to live out on mission. And so for the last couple of times, we've talked about how um, we were to be uh, subject to the governing authorities, how we are supposed to obey the law of the land and those that God has put in place to lead us, whether we agree with them or not, whether we voted for them or not. That takes a lot of Christian maturity. And so uh, that's one part of it. The next part is, is now it comes down to the household level. And last Sunday, if you missed it, I, I want to encourage you to go back and watch the video or listen to it on, on our podcast. But we talked about the idea of household slaves. We address slavery from a historical perspective and, and how we should view that as Christians. And so um, I think it'll be very enlightening for you from an educational perspective, but also from a trans formational perspective. And so today we pray that you will be edified in the word. So if you got a Bible, first Peter chapter three, verses one through seven, and we are going to read together. And here's what it says in the same way. Wives submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. 
Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear intimidation. And in verse seven, he addresses husbands. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. My sermon title this morning is Living on Mission, Marriage on Mission. Living on Mission, Marriage on Mission. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, God, for today, God. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And so, Father, we just pray right now, God, that you would sit with us, that you would dwell with us, God, as we are gathered around our electronic devices near and far. Father, I pray that, that you can touch each heart, God. I pray that, that you can transform us and work on our hearts, God, that you can do something in us, Father. I pray that, that we would conform to your image after today's message, God, that we would grow in Christ-like conformity. And so, Father, I pray today that this is not just informational, God. I pray that this would change us, God, that, that you would do some work on our hearts, God, that you would drive us to the cross, that you would show us our need for a savior, God. And so, Father, we just thank you today. We don't take this for granted that even though we can't meet in person, God, we can still gather around your word as a body of believers. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you today. We bless you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And the people said amen. And so I want to start off by referencing a film that was uh, produced and published in 2017. The title of that movie is called A Case for Christ. And this movie is actually based on a true story and it chronicles the life of Lee Strobel who was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune during the 1980s. He just so happened to be an atheist. Well, he and his wife, Leslie, find themselves meeting a lady in a restaurant during an incident that involved their daughter. This lady, however, is a Christian and she befriends Lee and his wife, who also happens to be an atheist. However, over time, Lee's wife becomes friends with this Christian woman. And due to this lady's friendship in her inviting them into her life and inviting them into her space, she becomes their neighbor in real life. She is their neighbor. And this lady so happens to lead Lee's wife to Christ. And now Lee's wife, Leslie, who was an atheist, is now a Christian woman. But she's a Christian woman with an unbelieving spouse. And so this immediately takes on real life tension in the home that, that this husband is now fighting tooth and nail against his wife's newfound religious expression. She, she, he is fighting tooth and nail because his wife is now converted, but he did not marry her under the guise that she would become a Christian at any point. When he married her, she was an atheist just like him. And so now he is fighting against this new reality in his home that he didn't sign up for. 
And so this this is kind of the picture that we see today. But as opposed to forbidding his wife from being friends with this Christian or forbidding his wife from uh, going to church, he decides to put his investigative and journalistic skills to use. And he starts off on a two year journey to disprove Christianity, namely the resurrection of Jesus. And so the movie journeys along as he continues to turn over every stone and searches every bit of his historical references to disprove everything about Christianity. But the thing is, the more he tries to disprove it and the more research he does, he finds that everything leads and points to the resurrection being a real event in human history. And so the defining moment in the movie, Lee says to his wife, Leslie, I had to prove this whole thing was wrong and I couldn't. The the evidence for your faith is overwhelming, but because you never stopped loving me, I don't think God did either. I now believe. And so the climactic time in the movie is now you see Leslie kneeling down with her husband, leading him in prayer as he surrenders his life to Jesus Christ. And this is one of those instances where this is not some fairy tale story, but this is a real story. In the backdrop of this story is not just an atheist coming to faith in Christ, but the real story is how a believing wife is now enduring with an unsaved spouse. And so here he was, as she says, open to everything as a journalist. He was always open to new ideas, covering any kind of story. Before I became a believer, he talked about anything but Christianity. He had in his mind that it was shut down. It did not exist to him. So I would try my best not to let that get to me. And I just tried to see him through God's eyes. I knew the value he had. And I also knew and friends knew And they would often say to me, if he ever becomes a Christian, watch out, he's going to be significant. And those words held true. And so the story about a case for Christ is a testimony of a woman who lived out her faith and eventually won over her unbelieving husband. And so what does that have to do with 1 Peter and what we read today? This is exactly who Peter is primarily addressing In this section of the passage, women who became Christians while they were married and had the hard job of navigating through their spiritual walk while being married to someone that did not share the same faith. Peter knew that Christian women were likely to have to live out their faith under the subjection of someone that likely was not a follower of Jesus. And so not only did they have to figure out how to navigate as a woman in a culture in which a woman didn't have a voice, but more so, how do I reconcile my faith in the house with somebody that does not believe what I believe. And so for all of those that say that the Bible is antiquated and archaic and it's not relevant for today and for our relationship, the Bible was so countercultural and so transformative that it spoke to and directly addressed the least of these in society when no one else would. And so for the Bible to address slaves and now for the Bible to address women directly, that was radical and countercultural. And so today when we see texts and they say things about women, we see it as suppressive and oppressive. But when the Bible sees it, when they they saw it and heard it in their times, it was radical to even address a woman and give her dignity and value. And so this is what Peter 
is doing. The, the Bible is showing off its redemptive value and a redemptive quality by instilling, instilling equal worth, equal dignity, and equal value to slaves, to the poor, to immigrants, and to women and children. And so he is addressing women that are married to men that are not saved. And, and so for us, I don't think we realize how high the stakes were in this. A woman in those days and in that culture was expected to adopt the religion that her husband followed. She was expected to worship the same gods, plural, the same gods that her husband worshiped. She also was expected to have the same friends that her husband had. She was not even allowed to have her own friends. And so if the husband didn't have a wife who followed his same faith, and the husband didn't have a wife who had his same friends, it made him look weak in society. And so this was important for a husband because he had to have his house in order. Everybody had to follow in his footsteps because that meant that he was a man in society. But when his wife didn't follow his religion and his wife didn't have the same friends that he had, that meant that he was a threat to the social order of the empire. So, so the wife who's now a believer knows all of this and she has to consider all of this and still follow after her faith. And so the wife knew that at any point she could bring embarrassment to her husband for being a Christian. She could possibly disqualify him from a job or disqualify him for some sort of honor or some sort of achievement because of what she believes. And so now she has to navigate how do I hold on to my faith that has changed my life, that has given me a new birth, but at the same time honor and respect a man that does not believe what I believe. And so... She has to fight the threat of looking like a rebellious person who does not respect her husband. So there were so many social implications in this story. And so the question for us is, what does a woman do and how does she navigate her walk with God and at the same time honor her husband that may be far away from God? This is a type of suffering. Peter sees this as a type of suffering to be in a marriage with somebody when you are pursuing God with your whole heart and they are apathetic, indifferent, or they don't believe at all. How do I walk with a husband when it will cause displeasure for him and ultimately cause pain for me? This is a type of suffering. And so this is a call to suffering for doing what is right in the name of Christ. And so the goal for the Christian woman was for her actions, number one, to glorify God. And secondly, by her character, she could possibly win her husband over for Christ. The, the goal was for her to, by her character, win over her unbelieving husband. Now, I want to give a practical warning here, and this is no shade to anybody. I, I respect everybody. I love everybody. But the truth is what the truth is. This is not a license for believing women or believing men to enter into a relationship knowingly with an unbelieving person. This particular context is talking about people who got married and then one of them came to faith after they got married. This is not saying that you are now a believer, you are dating somebody that is not a believer with the intention to get into a relationship with them. This is not a license for you to practice your own type of spirituality and enter into something that God does not allow you to enter into. This is not saying go into a relationship knowing that you will be unequally yoked with an unbeliever on purpose and then expect God to do a miracle in the marriage that you should have never got in in the first place. And so 
That this is not for you to marry someone that just got saved so that you will marry them. If you marry somebody that just got saved or they started taking their relationship serious just to win you over, I would question the basis of why they got saved in the first place. If they didn't get saved because they saw that they were a sinner and they saw their need for a savior, then they, their, their salvation is not on solid ground. You want somebody who is in Christ, who has a real relationship with Christ, who is rooted and grounded in God, not because you made them, not because you nagged them, because they, because they know that they need God for themselves. Marriage is hard. Marriage is beautiful, but marriage is hard. God designed marriage. Marriage is good. Marriage has beauty in it. Marriage is sanctifying. Marriage is redemptive, but marriage is hard. So please don't make a decision to start off in the hole and on the wrong foot and think that it's going to be awesome eventually. If you are a saved woman, marrying a godly person is paramount. It is dangerous to intentionally submit your life to someone that does not have a relationship with Jesus and doesn't have the least amount of a clue of the God-given responsibility that that God gave him to be a husband. I'm trying to help somebody. If the goal of marriage is to glorify God and show his relationship with his church, how is that supposed to work out and be God glorifying when the person that you're married to don't even know why the pur- what the purpose of marriage is? You can say amen. How can you expect that to work and be God glorifying? Marriage is not about you not being lonely anymore. Marriage is not so that you can take some nice pictures and post them up on social media and get a bunch of likes. Marriage is not about you buying the dress that you always wanted to wear. Marriage is not about paying for a bunch of food for a bunch of people that don't eat that type of expensive food anyway. And so marriage has purpose and meaning. It is to show the, the, the one flesh union and it's also to represent Christ and his church. And what I'm saying is this, is that if you are a single person, man or woman, you shouldn't be dating and doing evangelism at the same time. Go ahead and press the heart button even if you don't want to. And here's to say this, that if you do marry or you're dating a person that is saved and has a genuine relationship with God, that the marriage will be perfect. That's not what that means because two sinners are marrying whether they're saved or not. But it is to say this, that if a person is truly saved, when times do get hard and mistakes are made, you know that the Holy Spirit will convict them and they will eventually repent of what they've done and turn their ways. And so it is, it, is, it is pertinent and it is wise to enter into a relationship, not hastily, not, not hastily or, or without using caution and wisdom and, and without getting counsel. You, you enter into it knowing what the purpose of it is and knowing that the other person understands the same thing. And so in this context, a woman or a man is married already and now they become converted. And so this is also not a prescription for a person That if you are married and you get saved, the husband or the wife gets converted after they've been married. This is not a license now to divorce your unsaved spouse. (laughs) God doesn't give us a license for that either. And this is our exact context that Peter is trying to get us to see. He's giving us instructions on how to navigate through it and honor God at the same time. And so for women in particular, he gives two things that women, two ways that women can demonstrate their godly character and be evangelistic in their own marriage. How these two things can help them to win over their unsaved husband, or if it is a man in the same situation, how you can win over your unsaved wife. And there are two things 
The first one most people in our culture consider curse, curse word, and the other one is more personal. But the first thing that he calls us to do is to submit. He calls wives to submit. The second thing he calls wives to do is to cultivate a godly life, to submit and then to cultivate a godly life. These two things will be the means that God could possibly use to win over your unsaved spouse. And so let me clear something up about submission. Submission simply means this. Submission does not mean slavery. Submission means that you arrange your life under someone else's authority. You arrange your life under someone else's purpose. You arrange your life under someone else's authority. You put your own will aside and you put someone else's will ahead of yours. That's what it means to submit in a marriage. And for a Christian wife, it means that you prioritize your life to the priority of your husband's role in the kingdom of God. That means you are there to help and to support him. The Bible was already written before I got here. Don't email me. Don't text me. Read the word. So the wife is called to help carry out his kingdom responsibilities. And so this is a call for wives to submit to their own husbands. He says this a couple of times. Wives submit to your own husbands. And so that means that you're not to submit to every man. You are to submit to your own husband if you are married to a man. You are to submit to your own husband. That's not to say that if you have a boss at a job that you're not subordinate and you don't follow the leadership of your boss or that in a, in a spiritual environment you don't follow the direction of the pastor. But it is to say in the day-to-day -day of your life you are submitted to your husband. And this is also, because I know my audience, and I'm not throwing shade, I'm not taking shots at nobody. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. He's very specific in his language. He does not say, girlfriends, submit to your boyfriends. I didn't, I, did, I didn't write the Bible. It was already there when I got here. This is not submitting to the dude that you got a baby with. I, I didn't write it. That's just, that's just what it is. This is not that. This, I'm not dissing anybody. I just want to be clear about who biblical submission is for. This is not for you arranging your life under the guy you are dating by moving to Atlanta because he got a job offer. That's not what this is. This is for a married person to, to arrange a married wife to arrange her life under her husband. This is not a call for girlfriends, boyfriends, or people that are complicated. That, that's not what this is. And so the call for a wife to submit is a godly and good thing. The wife is submitting to the husband. That's not chauvinism. That's creationism. Because we get this from Genesis. God created the man and he, cre he created the woman for the man. God, God has uh, equal value for both, but they both have different roles. They both have different roles. God set the parameters and the standards for marriage at the outset. It is a part of our theology as Christians based on God's word that tells us his design for marriage. The submission of the wife mirrors Christ's, the, the church's submission to Christ. That, that's what marriage is. The same way that the church submits to the headship and leadership of Jesus, the wife is to model that by submitting to her husband. So that transcends culture. That transcends culture. It's not based on culture. It's based on scripture. So don't be confused and think that a call for a wife to submit her husband is synonymous with slavery. Slavery is an evil institution made by humans. Marriage is good because it was created and made by God. And so for every woman who hears the word submit and she shudders, 
she gets fearful and afraid because she's seen submission be played out in an evil way or a negative way. God made man and woman both. When you look at the creation account, Genesis 1 and 27, it talks about the Imago Dei, how both men and women are both created in God's image. So that means they both have equal worth, equal dignity, and equal value, but they have different roles. They have different roles. And so submission does not mean that a woman is inferior to a man, nor does it not mean that she's not as, as smart as a man. Most husbands will tell you, they'll be honest, they'll raise their hand. They're not gonna hit the button on the, on the online thing, but they'll be honest and say, your wife is smarter than you are. That's just, she's more in tune to what's happening than you are. Just be honest, keep it real, they are. Women are typically smarter than men. It just is what it is. So this isn't saying that women are inferior. Women have equal worth and equal value and equal dignity. They just have a different role. And here's another thing that will set you free. Submission is voluntary. It's voluntary. Biblical submission is voluntary. You should submit as a wife to your husband because you want to, because that's what God requires. It should come from your heart. The husband does not have the responsibility to force submission upon his wife. He can't force or beat her into submission. It has to be willing. One Christian author said this, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has a right to demand it. In fact, I know, I know as a husband when I am unworthy of it. She doesn't know that. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy of her submission. And so the idea of submission for a wife, you cannot submit without God's help. You need his help. Every time you think about submission and you realize how impossible it sounds, don't let it just drive you to despair. Let it drive you to the cross. It's reminding you that you need God to do it. You can't submit to nobody if you ain't Holy Spirit filled. You just can't. It is impossible. But know this, submission is not just for women. Submission is also for men. Men, godly men are submitted to Christ. When your husband goes to his job, he's submitted to his boss. So don't be intimidated and think that this is something that is picking on women in particular. This is about a role within an institution called marriage. And so here's what I want to do to set you free. First Corinthians 15, 28 says this. But when all things have been placed under Christ's rule, then he himself, the son, will place himself under God. He's placing himself under God who placed all things under him and God will rule completely over them. And so a wife's submission to her unsaved husband is not so that she can avoid conflict, not so that she can manipulate him to fix the refrigerator, not so that she can uh, make him go to church, not to submit that even, even if he's just a good dude, but a wife's submission to her husband is because of her relationship with God and her trust in Jesus. Biblical submission is an opportunity for a wife to model the submission and the life of Jesus. If oneness is the real goal of marriage, if the one flesh union is the real goal goal of marriage, then submission is just a tool to get there. It is a tool to get there. And so here's why submitting is so vital. Even if you happen to be married to an unbelieving spouse, particularly in their context, because it was all about social stability. And so for wife to submit to a husband was normal. But the Christian reason for submitting had nothing to do with the culture. It had everything to do with God, what God called them to do. And so if there's anybody that could demonstrate the beauty 
of submission, it was a saved woman. If anybody could demonstrate the beauty of what it was like to submit to anybody, it was a Christian woman. Why? Because she was modeling her submission after the one who showed how to do submission in a perfect way, which is Jesus. And so he's telling the wife to win over your unbelieving husband by submitting to his authority. That if you do that, he will see that Christianity is not here to subvert him. Christianity is here to walk him into being who he was supposed to be in the first place. That you show him the beauty of submission. That you show the beauty of submission and you show the beauty of Jesus and the gospel by submitting to your husband. So the first thing he wants them to do to win over their husbands is to submit to him. The second thing he wants her to do is cultivate a godly life, to cultivate a godly life. Here's what it says. Even if some disobey the word, talking about the husbands, they may be won over without a word. I love the wordplay there. Even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So what is he saying? What he's saying is that for a woman, the most likely way to win over your husband is not by badgering him to get saved. It's not by, by nagging him and annoying him about how much he needs to go to church. The way to win over your husband is through your life. To, to, to endure him, to endear him with godly character. He, he was calling them to live out the gospel in front of their husbands. He says, when they observe your pure, reverent lives, your primary influence on your husband ain't your speech, sis. Your primary influence is your godly behavior. I'm trying to help somebody. One author said this, live so well that he is glad you follow Jesus. That's good. Live so well that he is glad you follow Jesus. If he sees the transformation of your life and the way that you treat him and the way that you love him now that you are a believer, that will make your faith look attractive and maybe he will then inquire about and then adopt your faith. But nagging him, probably is not going to get it. You're probably working against yourself. He, he's probably going to dig in his heels. And especially if you don't demonstrate a transformed life in front of him. It won't help your cause if you're trying to get him to church, but you're cussing him out trying to get him to church. <laughs> that probably ain't going to work. And so he should not only see your physical presentation, but equally he should see your heart posture. He, he should see your heart. He says, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes or Waist trainers. I'm sorry. Did I? Did, was that there? I'm sorry. He says, "Don't." I'm sorry. That that's not there. I, I made that up. I put that in there. Uh, but rather, with what is inside the heart. He's not saying don't get your hair done. He's not saying don't wear nice stuff. He's saying that you should just put as much effort and put the same energy that you put into looking good. The same energy that you that you want to put for, for posting up on the gram, the, the same energy that, that, that you put into looking good so that you can get those likes, put that same interest into putting a, a beauty on your heart by making your heart look good. The, the problem is, is that there's a filter for your face, but there ain't no filter for your heart. My God, 
my God. And so he, he, he's not telling you not to look good. He's not telling you men like when you look good and you smell good and get your hair done, your nails did. He, he like all that. But he also wants to see a beautiful attitude. He wants to see a beautiful heart posture. He wants to hear beautiful words come out of your mouth. He wants to see a little long suffering, a little patience, a little peace, a little joy, a, a lot less bickering. I wish some men would help me say amen. But brother, I know you squirming in your seat. I feel you play. I feel you in the spirit. And so he's saying, for as much time as you spend in making yourself look good on the outside, take that same energy and make your heart look good. First Samuel chapter 16, verse Samuel, verse 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at your heart. But rather, what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. He put quiet there. I didn't. He put quiet there, I didn't. He says, that's of great worth in God's sight. And so before you get upset, because he says, have a gentle and a quiet spirit, that's not just for women. Matthew 5 and 5, he says, bless all the humble, for they will inherit the earth. That is the same thing as gentle, to, to be humble, to be meek. This doesn't mean that a woman is voiceless or that you don't say anything or that when something's wrong, you don't speak up or that you don't say anything. It just means that I'm praying that God would produce the fruit, that the fruit of the spirit would be working on my heart, that I would be producing the fruit of the spirit, that I would have a little patience, a little peace, a little long suffering, a little gentleness, a little kindness, a little self-control. And so the goal of cultivating a godly life is not just so that you can get him to come to church or so that he can get saved. But the real motivation for your godly behavior is the good news of Jesus and what he has done for you. Your good behavior, your gentle and quiet spirit is just a response to what God has already done for you through his son, Jesus. When Jesus got up out of the grave, when he was resurrected, he resurrected your attitude. He resurrected your heart posture. He resurrected your perspective. He changed your mind. And so now you don't look at your husband as the enemy, but you see him as an image bearer in the eyes of God. And because Jesus loved you and you're unloved, lovable state. Now you can love somebody else who may not know that they need a savior, which could be your spouse. And so this is a response to the gospel, but it has to be motivated by God. Your good behavior can't be so that he'll go to church. So whether that brother goes to church or not, Jesus is still your king. Jesus is still ultimate. If your motivation is to get him to change, then you are going to get tired. What's going to happen to your behavior when he never comes to church? What happens? Many women at some point in their lives were fighting the good fight of faith, loving God, loving Jesus. And be honest, most cases were saved before they got married, got into a marriage with an unbeliever. It's not shade to anybody. And after a while, you got wore down because you got tired. No woman wants to pursue God by herself. I know it's a culture of independence, right? But God didn't create us to be alone. If Jesus is in triune community, what makes you think that you've been called to be by yourself? So nobody wants to walk in this journey alone. That's why God gives us a church. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. We have spouses to become one with, right? And so no, one, no woman, no spouse wants to follow after Jesus, and then have to come home to somebody who does not. But, but, but 
when you are pursuing Jesus, it is, it is, it is a great worth in God. If it never becomes attractive to that man, it's attractive to God. It's attractive to him. Here's what it says in Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. It is good in God's sight. And so he gives them an example. Here's what he says in verse 5. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear intimidation. And so what he's referencing here is a story in Genesis chapter 18, specifically Genesis, Genesis 18, verse 12, where there's a story where God is talking to Abraham and both he and Sarah are super old. They're past the age of getting it popping. They're past the age of getting it popping. It ain't happening. It ain't happening. It ain't happening. Although I did read a story today about a woman in Africa who was in her 70s and she gave birth to twins. Look it up for yourself. But, but they are past the age of having children. And God speaks to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a son. And I want you to notice something in that story. In that story, Sarah hears the conversation that God is having with Abraham. And Sarah laughs to herself like these jokers are crazy. And Abraham is it's hyped up. Like God just told him, it's about to be popping for you, homeboy. You're going to have a son. Sarah is not convinced, but Abraham is convinced. He has a dream. He has a promise from God. He hopes for something. He believes something. And she's not quite convinced yet. And here's what it says. So she laughed to herself. After I am worn out, <laughs> after, my, after it ain't popping for me no more. And she says, and my Lord is old. My Lord, talking about Abraham, and my Lord is old. Will I have delight? Will I have children? And even in her doubting what her husband is believing, she refers to him as Lord. She is showing honor and respect for a man even when she's doubting what he believes. That is so good. That is so good. She doesn't call him old. She doesn't roll her eyes. She doesn't say, huh. She doesn't call her homegirls and say, guess what this fool told me? She doesn't call her sisters and have a negative conversation about her husband. Somebody say amen. She doesn't call her, 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 her auntie and talk crazy about her husband. She doesn't call her sister. She refers to her husband as Lord. And she respects his leadership even when she's not fully convinced. That's so good. That is so good. And you know what he's trying to point out for us when she calls him Lord? Not that you need to walk around and call your husband Lord, but what he's trying to show us, the main point is this, is that she has respect for him. But notice she's not respecting what he's saying because he's capable of producing it. She's respecting him because she's a godly woman. And so her respect for her husband is not because he deserves being respected in this instance. It's because that's who God has made her to be. And that is what he's calling her to do. So he calls her to two things, to submit, even if he's unsaved. That doesn't mean you submit when he tells you to do something that will lead you to sin. That doesn't mean that you submit to abuse. That's not what that means. Being submitted doesn't mean you put up with something that would endanger your life. It doesn't mean that. God didn't call anybody to be married and get beat up. That's the reality that we live in because we live in a fallen world. And so I think the last line, the last verse in verse seven addresses that directly. He addresses men in one line. 
He uses six for women and one for men. Well, that seems unfair. He wants women, the least of these, to know how to navigate. But in one sentence, he can call on a man to do what he's supposed to do. Here's what he says in verse 7, and I'm almost done. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. He calls them to live with their wives in an understanding way. Essentially, he's calling the husband to be a student of his wife. He's calling the man to know everything that he could possibly know about his wife, her moods, her idiosyncrasies, her temperament. And yes, that is a hard task. He's not calling the man to understand all women. He's calling them to understand their wife. <laughs> husbands, one author said husbands are scientists with a narrow field. I love that. Husbands are scientists with a narrow field. And husbands that are godly need God's help to live with their wives in an understanding way. You know the sad thing is that some brothers spend more time playing video games than they do understanding their wife. Brother, I'm not coming for you. Don't pull up. Don't pull up on me. And the ambulance won't have to pull off with you. Don't pull up, brother. However, there is a call for men. There's a call for men to lead, to know his wife to know his wife, to instill dignity and value to her. She, he says she's a co-heir with the grace of life. That means that she has the same gift of salvation that you do. That heaven will be her home just like it is with you. But if you are a husband that happens to be married to an unbelieving woman, he still expects you to respect her because she was made in God's image just like you. Paul says this in Galatians 3.28. There is no Jew or Greek Slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. Both men and women have equal worth, value, and dignity in the eyes of God. And so this is a way for God to, for Peter to put the onus on husbands to lead. Spiritually speaking, bro, it's cool that you pay the bills. Bro, it's cool that you work hard. And you should work. You should work. Work, brother. Job is just not a book in the Bible. That's a joke. But if you are a man, there should not be excuse for her to have to take care of you, bro. That's God gave Adam a job before he gave him a woman. It's in your, it's in your, don't, don't fight me. It's in your Bible, bro. And so you are to demonstrate what that looks like. This ain't about you making more money than her. It's not about that. But it's to say you lead by example, not just with your work ethic, not just with a job, but, but, but not just with putting food on the table, but she wants you to lead her spiritually. Brother, when's the last time you prayed with your wife? Brother, when's the last time you said, hey, baby, here's what I've been reading in Scripture. Here's what God has been saying to me. I know she knows how much money you want to make. I know she knows what career you want to go into. I know she knows your hopes and dreams. But what is God saying to you about the direction that he's taking your family? 
Or do you lean on your wife to set the course spiritually? And brother, if you're, if, if you're single, then now is the time to, to cultivate and develop your relationship with God. Because we have a role and responsibility too. That we've been given this assignment to lead wives, to, to lead them. And God wants us to lead them his way. And so her submission, although challenging, should at least be a little easy because you're being led by Jesus. And the final thing he says, and this should scare any man, he says that if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, if you don't honor and respect her, he says that your prayers will be hindered. You know what that means? That means, brother, if you ain't living with your wife in an understanding way and valuing her, that your prayers ain't going no further than the ceiling. Oh, you've been praying and praying and praying. It ain't nothing happening. Could it be? Because God ain't listening. And so if you have not been living with your wife in an understanding way, the first words of your prayer to open up communication with God again is, God, I repent. God, I repent. I'm sorry. Give me the grace to live with my wife in an understanding way. So I hope that this has given you hope if you are married to an unbelieving spouse. I hope that that submission, although our culture has tainted it, has now become a beautiful thing in your eyes because it's beautiful to God. I hope that you are in this time cultivating a beautiful heart like you cultivate a beautiful exterior. Man of God, I hope that this encourages you to see the weight of what God has given women to do and to endure, but also the weighty responsibility that he's given you to lead. And this is what it means to be married and on mission. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we, thank you. we hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.